Welcome to Twin Lakes. My name is Renee. I'm one of the pastors here. And I just got to say, if you are visiting this weekend, you chose a great weekend to visit here at Twin Lakes Church because this is a history-making day in the life of this congregation. Are you guys stoked about this? I'm so excited. As Mark said, after this service, we are having the groundbreaking for our new children's ministry building. And let me just kind of put this into context for you. Maybe you're just joining us or maybe you need kind of a reminder. About a year and a half ago, we first started talking about what we call the 2020 vision at our annual meeting. Since then, we've been in dozens and dozens of homes for dessert info meetings. Last November, Commitment Weekend, men and women and little kids and teenagers all brought in their pledges, and now we are having our groundbreaking. And what's interesting is we're in the exact middle of this timeline. We started talking about this 18 months ago at the annual meeting 2013, and Lord willing, 18 months from now, we will be opening the doors on our new children's ministry building. Isn't that exciting? I'm so excited about that. 18 months from now. And here's what we're doing to, to celebrate that and, listen, to emphasize that this is not really about a building. This is about people. This is about people's souls. Here's what we have for you. We have white flags like this uh, available at tables. This is not for you to say, I surrender. That's not what this is all about. This is for you to write down with the Sharpies uh, that are available at the tables, to write down the names of people whose lives you hope will be impacted by the ministries in that building. For example, you might write down the names of your own kids or the names of your own grandkids. To be honest with you, honestly, I uh, am writing down uh, just on uh, just words that say, future Schlepfer grandchildren, just in faith and in hope. That's what I'm writing down. But you might write down the names of some friends. And then what we're going to do, if you can't make it to the groundbreaking, just leave it at the table. If all of the white flags are filled, then use the other side or just write in the margin of one of the white flags that already has a name on it. And then we're going to go over to the groundbreaking and inside the footprint of the building, we are going to plant these white flags as a reminder that when we pray for the dedication of this place, we are praying for people. We're praying for future souls, for the, chokes me up honestly, for future souls and future ministries there. So please meet us at about 1215 down by the gym, that direction, and we're going to pray for that project, and we're going to have a little party. Are you guys ready to party about this? Let me hear you. Are you excited about this? I'm stoked. So excited. And one more thing. This is kind of a news flash. Literally, this just came in. Uh, show of hands, how many of you are Giants fans here today? Can I see a show of hands, Giants fans? We're not going to talk about the game last night, first of all. But that's not, not even going to escape my lips. I won't even refer to it obliquely. But... Here's what can lift your spirits a little bit. Just got this uh, confirmed. Uh, our speaker for next Father's Day will be Giants legend Dave Dravecki. I'm so excited about this. Dave Dravecki next weekend right here live at Twin Lakes Church. And there is so much cool stuff coming up. So read your bulletins and get to know all of this exciting thing that, 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 that's happening. But right now, why don't you grab your message notes that look like this. Conversations with Christ is the name of our four-week September series. We're looking at different stories in the Gospel of John. And this morning, we're looking at Jesus and the dying 
party. I want to tell you one of my favorite stories about Jesus from the Bible today, yet it's a story that really you don't hear talked about much in church. I mean, people in church might refer to this like really quickly, but they don't really go into the details exegetically like people do in a lot of other Bible passages. And I kind of have a personal theory about this. I think that's because in the story I'm about to tell you, if you really study it, there's some details about Jesus and what he did that are kind of almost embarrassing to some church people. Honestly, they're almost sort of... When I tell you some of these details, some of you are going to get a little bit uncomfortable. You're going to think, I've gone a little bit too far, but it's not me who's gone too far. It is Jesus Christ who has gone too far. And I really want to investigate this because in, in the details in these verses, I think you discover the answer to a really important question, which is this. What did Jesus come to do? Why was Jesus even really here? To be a teacher? Or to start a religion? Or to overthrow Roman oppression? Or even to be a great moral example? I don't think that's how he would have answered that question. And you'll discover the surprising answer in these verses. Honestly, this just might blow your mind. So let's look at the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We're going to walk through this verse by verse, and then I'm going to make three quick points. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Now, press pause, because that one sentence has a lot of really important info. So just to help you picture this story, really help you understand what happened here. First, it says, the third day. The third day after what? The third day after what just happened in the Gospel of John, which is what we looked at last weekend when the very first disciples started to follow Jesus. Now, all 12 haven't even gotten to him yet. There's about five guys now following him, and and it's just the third day since they started. So it's like they started following him on Wednesday, that's day one, and then came Thursday, and now it's Friday. This is the third day. So, So these five guys who are following him don't really know that much about Jesus yet. They don't really know why he's here. They don't really know anything about his power. And it says there was a wedding. Now, in those days, a wedding was a way, way bigger deal than it is even today. A wedding feast was like a a public holiday for the whole town. A a wedding feast was like the, the, the... Capitola Art and Wine Festival spread out over a week. It was like the Gilroy Garlic Festival without garlic but great wine. It was like the biggest day in the lives of the bride and groom. A wedding feast was the event for which a whole family would be remembered forever in that village. Ancient wedding feasts consequently went on for days for at least a week. So this is huge. And so what happens in this story is a major disaster. And let's see what Jesus does about this. Now, the next thing this verse tells you is that the wedding was in Cana. And just so you can kind of picture the story a little bit better, there's there's two places in Galilee where this is likely to have happened. Uh, They're about five miles from each other. They're both named Cana. One of them is this place called Kaffir Cana today. And it kind of looks like a California town, right? Here's a postcard of it from about 1925. Isn't that interesting? You can see that it was basically still unchanged 
from biblical times back then. Now, the other possible site is about five miles from here. It's called Kerbet, Cana. And it's interesting, archaeologists have found the foundations of very nice houses here from Jesus' day. Big ranch-style homes with central courtyards. And above these big ranch-style homes are what you see here. These are terraced vineyards. They're the ruins of vineyard terraces that were just above these homes of actually very wealthy people back in the day of Christ. You see, this was wine country. And it looks basically exactly like Central Californian wine country uh, along the coast. Like, think Paso Robles or think San Luis Obispo. That is exactly what this part of the world looks like. And in fact, it was wine country back in Jesus' day. And it says Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, now again, this was a social catastrophe. In fact, you know what I discovered that I never knew before when I was researching this this week? In those days, you could be legally sued for running out of wine at your wedding feast. I'm not making that up because it was like disturbing the peace because a riot might ensue. People might destroy the village. So this was like, you don't want to run out of wine. So the major deal. Jesus' mother said to him, they, uh, they have no more wine. Not asking, just saying. Don't you love this detail? <laughs> I love how Mary doesn't come right out and say, make some wine for the party. She just goes, hey, um, so they ran out of wine. She's such a mom, right? I love, this is such a true-to-life conversational detail. And Christ's response is so classic. I see kind of a twinkle in his eye, verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And I love how Mary doesn't even answer him directly, verse 5. What's, his, what's her response to Christ? She, she doesn't even say anything to him. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Don't you love that? Doesn't this sound just so true to life? Apparently, she had seen him in the past, like privately at their house. She knew he could do something about this, right? Apparently. So apparently, the only thing I conclude is he kind of took care of it one night when they were running low on some groceries and <laughs> Costco was closed, you know. And he's like, you want some Costco-sized milk? You know, somehow she saw him refilling the empty beverage cups or something. Do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. Which, by the way, is always good advice when it comes to Jesus. <laughs> do whatever he tells you. She just walks away. Classic mom move. Isn't that great? <laughs> Moms just know how to do this. They know how to apply the pressure without saying a thing. Do whatever he tells you. She leaves. And then next verse, verse 6. Nearby stood six, don't forget that number, six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, again, to help you picture this, these were not the kind of jars that were normally used for storing wine. Let me show you. For storing wine, they would have used ceramic jars, like these ceramic wine jugs that archaeologists actually found in the ruins of a wine shop from Jesus' time in this same area. This is what they kept their wine in. And apparently there were plenty of empties lying around at this party. But it's intriguing that Jesus does not fill those empty wine jugs. Why doesn't he do that? 
Well, it says he looked around and he noticed stone water jars, and this is a stone water jar from around that time. Now, there was only one reason to have a stone water jar. This isn't ceramic. It's not pottery. It's literally carved out of like a big giant rock, okay? One complete stone water jar. Only one reason to have one of these in a house in the first century. Jars carved out of stone were used only for religious ritual purposes because clay was seen as corruptible, you know, unclean, porous. But stone was seen as pure, and so to keep the stone jars pure, you kept them holy and only used them for one thing. You never drank out of them or anything. It was only used for ceremonial ablutions, ceremonial ritual cleansing for religious purposes. More on that in just a second. And these were huge. It says each one held between 20 and 30 gallons of water. And hold on to that detail in your memory too. Verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill those jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. And then he said, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And I love how Christ is being playful here, right? He doesn't say, ta-da, I made wine from water. <clears throat> he says, hang on a second, take some to the MC. The master of the banquet, he was like a combination of the caterer and the cook <clears throat> and the wedding DJ, you know, he was a pro here. It was his, it was, the whole thing was his job. Verse 9, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, hey, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. That's kind of funny, isn't it? But you have saved the best until now. Now you might think, well, you know, we're living in wine country here. These people were rubes. They were primitives. They were cavemen. They were easily impressed by whatever, you know, was in these jars. Let me just show you something. Wine was a major industry in this area. Here's an ancient wine cellar from the same uh, area. I've been in one of these. Uh, every village had its own wine shop. They actually imported wine from around the world. In fact, when they find shipwrecks from the time of Christ off the coast of Israel, often they find in the ruins of the freight hundreds of jars of wine that they were importing. What I'm saying here is that this was a culture that knew their wine. And the writer's telling us this wasn't just wine. This was great wine. Lots of great wine. How much? Now, you really need to picture this because in my children's picture Bible, it, you know, they had like a servant pouring out red liquid from just a little jar. But I, I want you to, I want to ask you this. So each jar, do you remember it held how much water? Do you remember? 20 to 30 gallons. And how many water jars were there? There were six. Now do the math. That means the amount of wine Jesus made was between 120 and 180 gallons. Now to help you conceptualize this, most of you cannot relate to drinking wine by the gallon. I hope not, at least. But <laughs> So how many bottles are in a gallon? Six. So that equals 720 to 1,080 bottles of wine. 
that Jesus made, and it was great wine. The expert says, you have saved the best until now. So this is about a 1,000 bottles of Wine Spectator Reviewed 98-point cab. This is not just adequate. This is extravagant. And see, that's the whole miracle. You know, to get wine that good, it's got to age. It's got to be bottled just perfectly. It has to be vintage. And Jesus is instantly producing vintage wine. I mean, that's really impossible. And just the fact that he made this comment is an interesting detail to me. I mean, what if he had turned the water into mediocre wine? What if he had produced like a thousand bottles of two buck chuck? That still would have been a miracle. But Jesus does it this way. Now, obviously, the last thing I want to be implying here is that to be like Jesus, you must drink wine. I just want to make that clear. Because some of you are going, best sermon I've ever heard. Listen. (laughs) I realize that in a church gathering, a lot of us have gone through a lot of time and a lot of struggle to get sober and stay sober. So I'm obviously not implying that you should all go out and drink. The point I'm making with these details is these people knew what wine was supposed to taste like. They would not have been fooled by grape Kool-Aid. They would not have been impressed by grape juice. And this was an extravagantly great quantity of the perfect vintage. Jesus is being just lavish. And then finally, verse 11 says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. You know what? Look at this verse. This verse is the key to understanding the whole story. This last verse. Because this was not called merely a miracle. This was called a what? A what? A sign. So if it's a sign, the obvious question to ask is, where's the sign pointing? If this is a sign, then what's the sign mean? And notice, it was the first of the signs through which Jesus showed his glory. In other words, this is the very beginning of Jesus' career. This is the very start of his public ministry. I mean, imagine you're a political candidate this fall. Or imagine that you're launching a brand. You're some kind of an entrepreneur. Or imagine that you're a musician releasing your first single. And it's your launch party. Kind of like Apple had a big launch party on Tuesday of this last week, right, with their new products. Or the Niners are having a big launch party tonight for Levi Stadium. Very graciously, as Mark said, they've put it off for our beach baptism. They're going to have it later. But still, it's it's an awesome launch party. And at a launch party, you're going to want to make sure your event, in every detail, conveys what you stand for, right? Conveys your brand. Well, look at this as Jesus Christ's launch party. Why would Jesus, as his first sign, use his supernatural power to make a lot of wine to keep a party going? I mean, why choose this? Nobody's dying. Nobody's starving. Nobody's sick. Nobody's being possessed by demons. It's just a party. 
Well, I see three things in the details of this story that tell me some surprising things about Jesus, but things I love about Jesus. And I'm going to spend by far the most time on this first point. <clears throat> Pardon me, and then just mention uh, the last two, but jot this down in your notes. Number one, Jesus is here to throw a party. Jesus is here to throw a party. And this is in contrast to all the ideas that people normally have about God being a killjoy and mean and sour and dry. In fact, lots of times Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, as a party, a feast, a banquet. I could show you tons of verses, but here's one, Matthew 8, 11. He says, I say to you, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. It's a feast. In fact, it's not just a feast. It's a wedding feast. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a rich man, a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Best party I've gone to in the last 12 months, my daughter's wedding party. Man, the reception after her wedding, love and joy and contentment just overflowed. Absolute exaltation and fulfillment and a sense of both at last and a sense of promise. Oh, boy. And Jesus says, yeah, that is kind of my brand. That's my trademark. When you think of me and what I came to bring, that's what I want you to think about because I came to bring a party. Now, some of you are uncomfortable with this. You're saying, I don't know about this. I mean, didn't Jesus come to suffer and to die? Absolutely, he did. But, of course, that is the means to an end. And the end is the party, the banquet at the end of all time. In fact, Jesus is really fulfilling what the Bible says all through the Old Testament about the last day, how it calls it a party. Look at these fascinating verses. Have you ever seen these verses before? Isaiah 25, 6 through 8. On this mountain, the new Jerusalem, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Isn't that awesome? There's going to be a banquet with no obesity. There's going to be vintage wine with no alcoholism. There's going to be a family reunion with no pending departure through death. Man, I love how in the book, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, when Sam wakes up and he finds out he's been rescued from the fires of Mount Doom and then he sees Gandalf is still alive too. He has a great line. He says, Gandalf, I, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Well, the answer is yes. The answer of the Bible is yes. If you believe Jesus, the answer is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue because heaven is going to come down to earth and renew the whole planet, and everything sad comes 
untrue. And what that does is it puts into perspective everything we go through on this earth. I love what Mother Teresa said. Great quote. She said, in the light of heaven, even a life full of sufferings will feel like one night in a bad hotel. (laughs) Now, why is that true? Because you believe this. The best is yet to come. The party's not over. This really makes a difference to believe this now. Tim Donnelly is a Marine who's become very well-known for singing the song Hallelujah at stadium events that are called Stand Up for Heroes. Let me tell you his story. In Afghanistan, Tim's unit was hit by a roadside bomb. And Tim lost both legs and the use of one arm, and yet he still can sing Hallelujah. Praise you, Jehovah. On, of all places, CBS recently, they interviewed Tim about what that word hallelujah means to him. Look at what he said. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. I thought I understood it, but next thing you know, my, my whole life's coming down around my ears. dream, every hope I've ever had for the future is broken around me and and I don't know where to turn. It was in that place that God said, do you still trust me? Do you still believe that I have what's best for you? And it was that moment that I understood hallelujah. And even though it all went wrong, I stand before the Lord I saw with nothing on my tongue, but hallelujah. I may be more whole now than I've ever been in my life. believe I'm more whole now after the bomb than I've ever been in my whole life. Why? Because he believes this. Do you remember what the MC said in the story? What a great line. He said, you've saved the best for last. You know what? That's what God always does. That's the promise of the future wedding banquet. God is saying, see, this is how I work. I save the best for last. I mean, I know what some of you are going through, and I think of what some of my own family and friends are going through, some real tough times, but this this phrase is true for you, and it's true for them, and it means that one day at the, the wedding banquet of the Lamb, that you are going to be able to look at God and and your friends and loved ones who know the Lord are going to look at him and they're going to say, wow, God, you've saved the best for last. That is true. That is true. And when you believe that, it changes everything. Now, if this is true, what does it mean for, for your emotional life, not just in the future, but right now today? I want to show you one of the most famous verses of the Bible, Psalm 118, 24. And I want us to read this out loud together. Help me out here. Ready? Here we go. 
This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Not yesterday sure was good, wasn't it? And not even just the future is going to be awesome. But this is the day. Let us rejoice. Let's rejoice. Problem is, followers of Jesus are not exactly known these days as people who rejoice, frankly. I mean, the Bible says in Christ's day, he was called, to use King James language, a drunkard and a wine-bibber. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus was a drunkard. It means he was so joyful that people wondered if he was on something. But these days, Christians are known as being mean and petty and judgmental and anti-this and anti-all kinds of things. I mean, honestly, sometimes I want to say to some Christians I know, if you believe in joy, tell your face. Do you know what I'm talking about? Please, alert your mouth. Because Jesus did come to throw us a party. And we can rejoice in it. But here's the thing, you know, if you're going to a wedding party, when you go into a wedding party, you want to be looking good, right? You want to be a little cleaned up. You want to wear the tuxedo or the nice gown or whatever. Well, guess what? Jesus does that for us too. Second thing I see in this story, points two and three very quick. Jesus is here to wash us clean, to wash us clean because he makes wine by filling up what? Jars used for ceremonial washing. Don't you love that detail? The, the religion, the Judaism of Jesus' day contained a huge number of rituals. And those rituals required ritual cleansing because the idea was God's holy and I'm definitely not holy. So to connect with God, I need to be somehow cleansed of my sin. And of course they knew that water from jars wasn't really going to cleanse of sin. And they longed for some sacrifice to truly do what the water in these jars simply symbolized. And we still long for this. Just last weekend, I was talking to a woman after church who wanted to be baptized uh, today, and I asked her, well, can you tell me why you want to be baptized? And she said, I just want to know I'm washed clean. I've made so many mistakes in the last year. I want to have a fresh start. And it was great because I had a chance to share with her that it's not the water of baptism that cleanses us from our sin. It's God's grace through faith in Christ. But I got to tell you, that's why today at the beach baptisms, you're going to see a lot of this. People just rejoicing. You know, the beach baptisms are kind of like a party that we're throwing today for these people who are just going to be stoked. Now, why are they so happy? Not because the ocean water cleanses them. That is for sure, especially down by the cement ship. I just want to say that. <laughs> and not because the baptism even ritually cleanses them, but because the water of baptism is a symbol of the fact that God cleanses them through Christ, that in God's sight, they're now 100% clean. And sometimes it's more dramatic than others, but they're white as snow. You see, by using the jars normally reserved for ceremonial washing, Jesus is saying, what those jars just symbolize is what I'm actually going to do. I'm going to wash you clean. Now, how's he going to do that? Point three, Jesus is here to die for me. Jesus is here to die for me. Where do I get that out of this story? Do you notice the weird detail when Mary says to Jesus, uh, so they've run out of wine. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. What does he mean by my hour? Well, he says this other times in the Gospel of John, and each time it refers to the hour of his death. It's like he's looking into the future three years later. 
And he's thinking, yeah, I'm here to bring a party. Yeah, I'm here to wash you clean. But I am going to have to drink a cup I do not want to drink to enable you to have that aged wine at the party. I'm going to give you life, but I'm going to have to die to do it. How does Jesus bring us all that joy? By losing all of his, by going to the cross. This is a great picture of the cross by Rembrandt. Do you see how he painted himself into the picture, though? In that blue painter's beret? He's wearing clothes from his era. This is 15 centuries out of style. Why did he put himself, you know, chronologically inaccurately into that painting? Because he was saying, it's my sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. And at the foot of the cross, I receive forgiveness for those same sins. Rembrandt is saying, I believe Jesus came to die for me. The point is this. Jesus did not come to teach us how to save ourselves. If he did that, he'd just be like the founder of every other religion. Jesus came to save us himself. He said, I am God, come to find you. I have planned a wedding feast. I'm getting it ready, and I'm going to wash you clean so you can enter in. And I did that by sacrificing myself. Don't you love this story? I, I look at it this way. Our world is kind of a dying party, and the wine is running out. And Jesus doesn't come to deliver a lecture. He's here to invite you to the real party, the ultimate party. In fact, the Bible has this invitation. Look at this. These are words for all of us from God. Come, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters, and you have no money. Come by and eat, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what's not bread and your labor on what doesn't satisfy? What a great invitation. There's never been a better invitation because it's all about grace. It doesn't cost and why spend your money on something that doesn't satisfy anyway? That's a dying party. Come to the one that Jesus invites you to. You know, there's a fascinating parable Jesus tells that shows you the party from God's perspective. Do you remember that verse that we looked at from Matthew 22? The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. But the, the story goes on. He sent his servants to those who'd been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. And then he sent some more servants and said... Tell those who've been invited, I've prepared my dinner. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention. It's enough to make you feel sorry for God. <laughs> it's, it's not even like they said no. They didn't even pay attention. So what will you do with the invitation? Because God longs to host you, to dance with you, to dine with you at that wedding feast. I'll close with this. Uh, NBC News had a story recently about a doctor who's dying of pancreatic cancer. He only has a few weeks to live. And his daughter knew that one thing he'd always wanted to do was dance with her at her wedding. Problem, she's not even engaged. She's not even dating. So it looked like he'd never be able to do that. And then she had an idea. Watch this. My dad is like the ultimate dad, like the ultimate hero, the ultimate 
be there, support you. This is the day she's always dreamed of. The gown, the makeup, the flowers. I know she's going to be stunning yes, and her hair is going to be beautiful. I'm just going to stand there in awe. But there's one thing missing, a groom. Instead, this day is about the other man in her life. I just want to tell him how much I love him and how much I'm going to miss him. Dr. Wolf is dying, pancreatic cancer. He likely has less than three months to live. There's a lot of things that I would have liked the girls to experience with me being there. And I'm not going to be there. So to make sure that he would be there, Rachel came up with an unusual idea, create her own father-daughter dance and record it. I just was flabbergasted. James drained by chemo, finding strength for his family. Just hours before the big moment, he's in the hospital. Later, so exhausted, he can barely get dressed without help from his wife. I don't know what to expect. I'm hoping that he's feeling well enough to be able to get that dance in. The crowd seems to wonder that too, until the limo pulls up. Are you gonna help me carry this dress? <laughs> That's not a drag, yeah. Okay. Hi, honey, you look gorgeous. <laughs> it may not be exactly like Rachel always dreamt. I love you, Daddy. But it's one last dance she'll never forget. It's the relationships that you build over the years that is the most important thing in life. So A dance proving that when it comes to making memories, why wait? For today, Gabe Gutierrez, NBC News, Auburn, California. Isn't that a beautiful story? That's a beautiful, beautiful story. But do you see how that is what Jesus promises you. Only he doesn't promise a dance before the suffering, a wedding dance before the death. He promises it afterwards. He says, after the death, after the pain, after all the suffering that we, we have to go through in this life, then there's going to be a wedding banquet. And you know, he's going to look at you with an infinite multiplied times love than that father had for his daughter, as great as that was. He's, he's going to look at you with the love of every groom for every bride throughout human history times infinity. So really, the bottom line is this, RSV to that party. Turn away from the things that don't satisfy anyway and run to the celebration that Jesus came to start. And I want to give you a chance to do that right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that all over this room, people are saying to you, just settling the issue, if they're, if they're unsure whether or not they've done that, they're saying, God, I turn away from what does not satisfy to the wine that just runs dry. And I turn to you, to the wedding feast of the Lamb. 
And now with everybody's head still bowed, let me just address everybody in this room individually. I want to give you a moment to just quietly pray and respond to Christ's invitation. And while we do that, Trent is going to softly play just a couple verses of a great old hymn. But this is a chance for you to just just settle the issue and tell Christ, I accept the invitation. Maybe you want to pray, Lord, I don't understand a lot about the Bible, about Jesus. I don't get all of this. But what I do know is the things of this world run dry. And I want to follow this Jesus who came to start a party and cleanse me and die for me. So I come to you. And maybe this is a chance for you, if you've made that decision, to again focus on the cross and just say thank you. Thank you so much. So as Trent sings, you're welcome to sing this song with him or to just sit and listen and make this your continued prayer right now. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to you so much that you came to bring us joy and abundant life and a feast, a banquet of riches. And as we leave today, may we tell our faces, may we rejoice in Jesus' name. Amen.